Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. In the end, we want to provide a few thoughtful hot takes about football. Today, I'm joined by analyst, this is how we do it, Harshal Patel. In addition, I'm joined by, yes, I am a West Ham fan analyst, David Seymour. Finally, I'm joined by Sam, my trusted brother, Brotherton, a professional center back for North Carolina FC. I'm host, Chris Mumford, known as the professor, Bella Chow. During the finale of the post-COVID season, it was a story of threes. For Champions League qualifications, three teams vied for two spots. In the relegation zone, three teams fought for two remaining spots in the Premier League. During this week, we saw the battle lines of the future infused with lively youth movement. After recapping the final matches, we will give our first impressions of what the season brought and what the fall will offer. Harshell, help us unpack that Man U West Ham game, which had profound implications at both ends of the table. Yeah, so obviously the final scoreline for that was one all. It was a draw, which I mean, at that point, to be honest, it's not like Manchester United um, were really sort of disadvantaged by that because they knew that even if they got a point on the last day against Leicester, that they would qualify for the Champions League. But in terms of the match itself, I thought West Ham did well in terms of not allowing United space in behind. They were they were compact. They they didn't allow um, you know any sort of space for the li- likes of Rashford, Martial, Greenwood to run into, which they're obviously great at because they have the. the that one of their main strengths is their pace. United looked a little leggy as well. They looked really fatigued, a lot of the players, because Ole has rarely rotated his first choice um, 11 ever since the start, uh, the restart. He's mostly played the same team. So those guys had a lot of legs, uh, had a lot of miles in their legs. And, and it, it showed that they were a little tired and they weren't really running at full capacity. And what another thing I found interesting from a tactical point of view, at least from Manchester United's in terms of the attacking, uh, the way United were attacking was that um, you could really see that they need someone out on the right flank who's uh, a proper winger or someone who can sort of provide width there because United have been playing Mason Greenwood there for most of the restart, but he's naturally a striker and he's, I mean, he is two-footed, but he favours his left a little more than the right, so he comes inside and there was a real lack of width there and uh, Timothy Fosumensa started there right back and there were so many occasions in the first half of that game where Fosumensa was the most advanced player down the right for United and he didn't have anybody in support. Like Paul Pogba would be maybe 10-15 yards but behind him or Bruno Fernandes is coming in to support him but there's nobody in front of him or, or making a run beyond him whom he can play the ball ahead to and that caused a lot of the attacking thrust down the right to die down because the ball had to be played back or Fosumensa had to wait for someone to catch up and by then West Ham would get back into shape. So, that um, that really, sh- uh, I mean, that showed that United need to recruit there in the summer in that position. But overall, yeah, I was, I was pretty um, satisfied, I guess, as a United fan that we got the point and we didn't lose. But it, it was, United could certainly have done better. I think West Ham fans would have been really happy and I think David can probably tell us a bit more in that sense. Yeah, I think with the, you're totally right with what you said about Fosu Mensah, but I think it was United sort of just sacrificing that right wing, which isn't necessarily the best thing going forward, but for the situation, it was fine. And it allowed Greenwood to, to, to move inside. And I think when I was watching the game first half, United were really struggling to break down that low block that West Ham had in place. And it, and for West Ham, it, it, was, it was good. It was, it was a nice change to see us looking relatively okay defensively. Um, but I thought that for Greenwood's goal, United did phenomenally well to work the ball in such a tight space to, to, to create a chance. Um, from, from West Ham's perspective, point was a very welcome result. Obviously, uh, I mean, any, anything at this stage of the season was a bonus and that point went towards ensuring that we stayed safe but I think my favourite talking point of the game particularly as I'm not a big uh, fan of our ownership was uh, the decision to allow um, Mikel Antonio to take the penalty and as I understood it 
that was his 10th goal of the season, which meant that he got a big bonus, which was written into his contract. And uh, the players conspired to allow him to do that. So that was nice to see. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a strong finish this season, West Ham. I think Ben Johnson's looked pretty good at right back. And that's good to see because obviously Ngakia left and is has gone on a three. But as I understood it, Ben Johnson was far higher rate at the beginning of the season. And two, he was injured. He was actually seen as the backup right back to Fredericks with Zabaleta as a third choice. So it'd be interesting to see if he gets a, a run of games next year. I haven't been impressed with Ryan Fredericks, but I, I don't see the need to bring in a right back if they're going to give Ben Johnson a, a run of games. And he's looked, he's looked really good in the last couple of games. So I'm hoping next season Ben Johnson gets a run. I think that a left back is a priority. I think that centre back is also a, a big must. Nice. So Sam, help us unpack that absolutely marquee uh, match between Liverpool and Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know where to start. Um, it was an absolutely crazy game, I think. Liverpool have struggled a little bit post the lockdown and since they've wrapped up the the title with their kind of motivation, their intensity. But you'd see right from the, the first whistle that they, were, they came to play, um, they really started strongly pressing and, and Chelsea were having some difficulties. I mean, Chelsea really, they started okay to be fair to them, actually. But uh, I think once once Kader got his goal and transfer kick went in, um, it was just a high high intensity affair. Liverpool were playing good football, um, and I think they proved kind of what a what a team they have been this season. And, and just they have threats all over the park, which makes it so difficult for other teams. When the fullbacks are being effective, they can score from set pieces. They can score from Salah and it was nice to see Firmino get a goal as well. Um, I think Pulisic made a huge impact for Chelsea at the end. I think he's been been really good since since the break. So. Yeah, it was a fun game to watch. It was very entertaining. Um, I don't think either side will be pleased with their defensive performances. Um, I think Chelsea particularly, they've got some some areas at the back that they really need to work on if, if Frank Lampard kind of wants to take that team to the next level and, and be consistent and challenge for the title. So, yeah, it was uh, kind of an indictment of, of season, a lot of what we've, we've seen with Liverpool's threats and just being so dangerous and Chelsea kind of having some attacking weapons but just not being able to kind of uh, keep keep it um, tied at the back. Yeah, I'll tell you, I was concerned that this was going to be one of those incredibly top-of-the-table, underwhelming matches. Uh, and what I ended up seeing was a Liverpool that scored in so many different ways, right? Keita from 20-some-odd yards uh, on, on mid-stride. Uh, you had Alexander-Arnold hitting that beautiful set piece of which I blame Keppa. He should have known it was going upper left-hand corner. It's the only option from there. Wijnaldum picking up something messy off the six. And then um, Firmino coming in from a uh, a nice long cross uh, for a header into the goal. It's just they beat you with so many different weapons to kind of reinforce your point. I, I saw on the other side, I saw Chelsea that you had a couple of really great individual performances that kept them in the game. You mentioned Pulisic. I also want to give a shout out to Giroud, um, who I still think is the hardest working uh, man in the Premier League. Uh, he had a, a Sergio Aguero-esque type finish, uh, knocking a ball in, uh, a kind of a messy ball in from a yard or two out. But the ball doesn't go in there unless he's there. So um, I saw some nice individual performances from Chelsea. I saw a great weakness. Um, you know, I think Chelsea can beat anybody on any given day, but uh, can they do it for 38, uh, 38 matches? And I think the answer is a hard no. Um, and Chelsea is pulling a arsenal of, of 2018-19 and focusing all on offense rather than on defense. So just really glad to see uh, a game that exceeded expectations. Uh, so that, that was a whole lot of fun. I think, um, I think less, uh, sorry, Chelsea need to work on, I mean, it's just, for me, it was just sloppy. And I think you could break down all five goals that they conceded and say that they were avoidable. I think the first goal, William gave the ball away incredibly cheaply. And um, second goal, there was, of course, the free kick, which they gave away in a dangerous position. Third goal, you're looking at yet another uh, corner. Fourth goal was, um, oh, it was when Firmino managed to steal in between two of the centre-backs to win a header. Firmino winning a header inside, like, close to the six-yard box. What's go what is going on there? And then, obviously, the fifth goal was a, a quick break. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just, I thought, really sloppy. 
from Chelsea. I think if you're a Chelsea fan, I, I, listen, I get why they're trying to sign all these attacking players right now. It sounds like Kai Wertz is almost over the line because the Premier League have stupidly given this five substitutes rule that's going to continue for next season, which I think is ridiculous. I think it gives an incredible imbalance in the league uh, favouring the big teams that have got bigger squads and afford to, to pay for these kinds of players. You've got the situation where Chelsea are going to be able to bring potentially hudson Odoi, Mason Mount and Pulisic off the bench in one go. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's outrageous that they're allowing this to happen. I think it's... I mean, I... I've given up with, with the Premier League, to be honest with you, with, with how they, they govern themselves at times. But the, I think this is just absolutely ridiculous. But if you're a Chelsea fan, they've got an endless pot of money. I know they're going to have more to spend than other teams because obviously they had their transfer ban last season. But they, they need to sign a left back. They need to sign... You could argue they need to sign two centre-backs. Um, I think Ethan Ampadu will get minutes next year, but he's not the answer. They haven't got a dominant centre-half. And that is a big must for them. Right. I think uh, Rudiger with a, a better partner kind of beside him could be a top quality Premier League centre back. I think he has he has all the tools. You're a Rudiger fan? I uh, I think he's too too inconsistent. Uh, I think he's another centre back that's just it seems to have a mistake in him every game, which you can't have at the top level. He might get away with it against some teams, but I'm talking top, top level. If you look at Liverpool, Van Dijk, Gomez, Matic, three top-class centre-backs, very consistent. Um, and you see City are trying to bring in a, you know, a centre-back. I'm sure they will be looking to bring in a centre-back to, to partner Laporte because, as we've seen with them this year, they've had mistakes which have cost them. Well, let's stay on Chelsea, but uh, Harshal, walk us through the Chelsea Wolves match. Yeah, so Chelsea picked up the win 2-0. Um, it, and to be honest... Towards the end, or not towards the end, but it, it became more of a routine win because Wolves started off well, but Chelsea sort of took control of midfield. And I think Mateo Kovacic had again had a really good game. I'm a big Kovacic fan, and uh, he sort of controlled um, the midfield once the initial sort of waves of Wolves' pressure or the Wolves' momentum had died away. But he was absolutely brilliant in midfield. So, and then Chelsea were able to get two quick goals just before halftime. Mount had a really good free kick, uh, which he scored from. And Giroud, again, as you said, Chris, had a, uh, another sort of opportunistic goal or a poacher's goal in that sense. So, I think, obviously, Frank Lampard will be really happy that they've made the Champions League. They ended up in fourth eventually instead of third because Manchester United won their game and they finished fourth on goal difference. But it doesn't really matter. They've made it to the Champions League. But as David said, there are a lot of issues there. They've conceded 54 goals, which is ridiculous, I think. I don't remember, but I, I, they definitely have conceded the most number of goals of any of the top, top 10 sides and probably a bunch of the other sides in, uh, in the bottom half of the table as well. So they have a real problem in terms of their defensive side of things and especially at uh, set pieces as well. I mean, it's painfully obvious where the issues are uh, in terms of defending corners, for example. They go with a mix of man-to-man and zonal marking, which leaves the back post empty. And there have been so many goals that have been conceded from that zone for Chelsea, from set from corners or set pieces where somebody gets a header in at the back post. Although, I mean, it looked like they worked on that in training today because Wolves did try that a couple of times from corners in today's game. And uh, Chelsea sort of looked like they'd had it controlled or they'd worked on the training ground where they blocked off that space. But there still is a lot of work to do. They definitely need to improve on the defensive side of things because, I mean, I, as David says, if the, they sort of pile on the attacking talent, that, that might be able to get them through the Premier League in the sense that they have uh, more substitutes they can call on and all of that. But Chelsea, I think, want to do well in Europe as well, in the Champions League. And that is a place where you will get caught out defensively. As we've seen, they're 3-0 down to Bayern in the first leg of their Champions League uh, round of 16 game. So, if they want to do well in Europe, if they want to be a consistent side, they really want me to focus on the defensive side of things. And that is probably the true test for Frank Lampard because there were defensive issues in his season at Derby County as well, where he was before he came to Chelsea. So, we'll wait and see what they do in the summer transfer window and how the next season starts. But in general, yeah, I think it was a good season for them. They've managed to get into the Champions League. They've had a few very good individual performances. And this game was a good way to wrap all of that up. Well, let's go ahead and switch our attention to uh, the Man U-Leicester game. And uh, Harshal, why don't you kind of walk us through the highlights there uh, and then love to hear what Sam's views are on those. Yeah, so 
Leicester, I mean, when the team sheet came out, I wasn't expecting them to continue to stick to a back three. It looked like they'd gone to a back four, but they, Roger, Brendan Rodgers actually put James Justin in as the third centre-half, the right-sided centre-half, and he put Mark Albright in at right wing back. So, he took Ryan Bennett out of the team, which I think makes sense also because Bennett had been very exposed against pace. And in general, that, that three-man back line that Leicester were playing in matches before this one was Ryan Bennett, Wes Morgan and uh, Johnny Evans, all of them over 30 years old and very vulnerable to pace, which United had like in spades, right? So, it made sense in that, uh, in that regard to try and um, mitigate that to an extent. And uh, I thought... United, again, struggled in the first half. The, the passing wasn't quick enough. It wasn't, uh, the tempo wasn't there where they'd be able to break Leicester down. I thought that 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 change that I spoke about where they brought Justin in at right centre-half made a difference because he was able to track Rashford's runs. He was able to track Martial at times. He was able to get back in terms of recovery runs if he was caught out. So, that um, did help them from a defensive point of view. And at the same time, because they were playing a back three, one of uh, that that allowed either James Justin or Evans to sometimes step out in midfield and cover Bruno Fernandez when he was uh, looking to be able to find space in between the lines. So I thought they had a really good first half. They managed to keep United at bay, but um, United got a penalty again. Martial bursting through and uh, Evans and Morgan sort of went. Both of them went in. I think I thought both challenges would have been enough to get a penalty, and eventually it was the Evans one that got the penalty. So. United took the lead and then from there, it was pretty much plain sailing. Uh, I thought the red card for Evans was justified. He went in high on McTominay and then Schmeichel made an error right at the end of the game for Jesse Lingard to get a goal, which I mean is a great way to finish the season for United. He, it's his first goal in the league since December 2018, which was um, uh, Solskjaer's first game in charge against Cardiff. It was the last time he scored in the Premier League. So, it's been almost two years or a year and a half since he last scored in the league. So, in that sense, it's a good way to cap off the season for United. They're in the Champions League um, and they have the Europa League coming up as well. But there are problems in terms of uh, maybe the squad that's been used. It's been it's been used quite a lot. United need to get some depth into their squad. Ole either doesn't trust the, the other players on the bench or those guys can't perform those specific roles that he needs them to do on the pitch that the likes of Matic, Pogba, Fernandes are doing and that's why they're playing every game. But that's also led to a lot of fatigue. I thought Fernandez was extremely fatigued today. He looked like he was really tired, even though he obviously got the goal from the penalty spot. But he was he wasn't up to his usual self in open play. So again, there is a lot of work for the United hierarchy to do in the window. But as with Chelsea, it's a good way to end off the season. What do you think, Sam? Well, well, let me interrupt one second, Harsha. I'm a little yeah. worried that Manu doesn't have enough funds to support uh, that sort of depth. So. Um, I mean, uh, I wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> Ending up in the Champions League has anyway added 50 million there. So, let's see who they get. All right, Sam, Sam, what's your take on the match? Yeah, I mean, Harshaw spoke about Manchester United's depth. I think the lack of uh, depth in the Leicester squad has been really evident kind of since the yeah. lockdown as well. Um, they lost Madison. They lost Chilwell. I think even though Chilwell is their left back, he offered them a lot going forwards, um, kind of driving them up the left-hand side of the pitch. And without Madison's creativity, they just like, I didn't see them scoring today against Man United, which was, was tough because as a Liverpool fan, I would really like to see them uh, take one over Manchester United. But uh, yeah, I think Leicester have struggled a little bit um, without their creative players. And it'll be interesting to see how, I mean, they've had a really solid season. I think Brendan Rodgers has done a great job. They've probably exceeded expectations. But where, where do they sit next season? How do they kind of strengthen their, their squad? Can they take that next step and really um, kind of cement themselves in the, in the top six and uh, kind of be a, a top-tier Premier League club. Yeah, I think that's going to be a really interesting take uh, going forward is, you know, w- what what moves do they have to mo- to make? Um, I, I think if you asked most Leicester fans, hey, if at the beginning of the season, if, if we could guarantee Europa League ball or not, uh, I think they take, I would have taken it. So, uh, you know, expectations is such a... Uh, uh, can really fuss, fuss things up a little bit. Um, so let's let's move on to to relegation. Uh, you know, David, your your favorite team has been in the center of it. Ended up coming out swimmingly, uh, a a real star. Um, help us unpack what what happened in the relegation battle this year. Yeah, it's been it's been really interesting. I think the the break changed everything. Um, I think you could argue with that with the top of the table, 
with the case of Leicester and United, who's formed certainly uh, differed after the break, but I think even more so at the bottom end of the table. We saw Brighton, who were in free fall and had a very difficult run of fixtures, uh, pulled through and ended up well clear. We saw Watford, who, I'll be honest with you, I saw pulling clear, fall apart. The Nigel Pearson storyline is bizarre and I think sums up potentially how that club has run. Um, although I heard that if they had stayed up, he still would have been given his million pound uh, bonus for keeping <laughs> for keeping him up. But yeah, that, that was a bit of a messy situation. And be interesting to see. I, I would imagine Watford will, will come back strong in the next year or two because of the finances they've got behind them and, and the the, uh, the they're involved with this kind of like uh, re- relationship with other clubs, aren't they, Harshal? Where yeah, so it's the same owners as the Bonzo family, which owns. Watford, Udinese, and I think they used to own Granada. I don't think they own Granada anymore, but definitely Watford and Udinese have that sort of relationship. Is they own the same group. So well, presumably they'll get a load of loan signings next season. But yeah. um, obviously we, we, hey, we knew Norwich were down. Chris didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then Bournemouth, Bournemouth were, I guess, I thought Bournemouth were going to go down and... Uh, it was an odd one. They looked like they were in free fall and then they really turned it around in the last sort of three games or so. Yeah, they played well in those last three games. Yeah, it was very... They played well. It was very Bournemouth-y to do that, I thought. <laughs> um, and then and then Bavilla, obviously staying up the last game of the season. I think, I don't remember, I'm sure that it wasn't as far uh, um, away ago as I can think of, but I don't remember a last day where there were three teams that could have potentially stayed up with like right down to the last kick of the game. So I think that's, that's pretty good value. And, and particularly, you know, a week or not even a week after the championship ended in such a dramatic fashion as well. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the Premier League's relegation battle was a good one this year. Yeah. And I would say that because West Ham stayed up. If we'd gone down, <laughs> I would have been like, that was, that was terrible. <laughs> right. Um, Harshel, what, what's your take on the Champions League spots? Were they... Were they rightfully allocated in in the scheme of things? If we did 100,000 simulations, is this where we would come up at? Or what's your take? Yeah, I mean, if you you did 100,000 simulations, I think that this would be where you'd end up at because these are four of the biggest clubs in in England. They have some of the best players. They pay out some of the most, like some of the highest wages and all of that. So, yeah, if you did 100,000 simulations, I'm sure this would be the result in the majority of them, which is why... As you said, expectations can change your perception of a season so dramatically because Leicester, at the beginning of the season, they would have taken a Europa League spot if they were given one. And they just had such a fantastic first half of the season that we all assume that they, like that Champions League spot was a short. But I mean, um, I, I don't remember what the exact start date is, but if you look at a table from December onwards, Leicester would be 14th or 15th in that table. So they've literally had like, a, a clear difference between the first half and the second half of the season, which there's a number of issues. I mean, there's a number of things which have caused that. Injuries, the fact that their squad obviously isn't as deep as some of the bigger clubs and all of that. There might be a bit of, I think, Rogers' tactic might need to change his tactics a little bit as well. But all of that combined sort of contributed to this. But they've still had a great season. I mean, Europa League is nothing to sniff about for a club like Leicester. But in general, yeah, otherwise, I think it's, it's come down... Um, it's been fairly allocated in the sense that the table doesn't lie. And we've had a full season, even though it's been interrupted and all of that. But yeah, I think the four best teams in the country this year have made it to the top four. And I mean, I will say that Sheffield United are probably one of the best teams in England this season. And they fell off quite a bit as well. I mean, they were up for Champions League on potentially Europa League, but they've fallen off a little bit. But again, that tells you that I, the same story about expectations because who could have thought that Sheffield United would be in contention for a Europa League or a Champions League spot at the start of the season. So it, it boils down to what you think your club, where your club should have ended up or where they, um, their rightful spot is in that sense. And if you look at it that way, I think Chelsea and United fans will be really happy to get back into the Champions League. Well, it, Tottenham snuck back into what is it? Was it they finished in sixth place, right? From, yes, yes. from, from nowhere. Um, Wolves kind of came up 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 on on fumes a bit, um, but 
But I mean, even Wolves, to be honest, have a chance to get into the Europa League because if Arsenal win the FA Cup, mm-hmm. they they go into the Europa League as well. So yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, you kind of look at Arsenal and you wonder: had did they underperform or did they overperform this season? Uh, it's it's. I think again, they they completely underperformed under Emery. They weren't really doing that well under Arteta, but the last couple of weeks or last, say, four or five games or a little bit longer than that, they, it looks like they have a bit of a plan, at least on the pitch. It remains to be seen what they do off the pitch in terms of transfers and all of that. But um, Definitely looks like they have an identity on the pitch, like they know what they're doing, like that the squad knows what Arteta wants from them. And Arteta, more importantly, knows the kind of players he wants on the pitch, the roles he wants and what he doesn't want as well, which is why we've seen, for example, Mesut Ozil, I don't think he's been on a bench this since the restart. Maybe once, forget getting on the pitch. Guindosi is clearly out of the picture as well ever since all of the off-field stuff and the um, sort of disagreements he had with players on the pitch against Brighton. So, it's it's. He, I, I think Arteta knows what he wants and it's a question of whether Arsenal can, uh, the board and the, whoever does the transfers there can get him that. But again, I think Arsenal fans should be pretty... Uh, I wouldn't say happy, but they should be hopeful looking forward to next season, dependent on whether they can get some of the transfer business done. So I'm finding, I'm hearing, I'm seeing screaming needs for defenders uh, in the transfer period, but I don't see any headlines on that really, right? You hear of Kubali. Sam, what's what's your take on that? And and who, what do you think are the biggest defensive needs uh, within in the league? Yeah, I think there's clubs that are definitely going to be uh, in the market for centre-backs. Um, I think Man City are probably looking for someone to partner Laporte. Chelsea maybe need one, two. Um, Arsenal the same, possibly one or two. Um, but yeah, like you say, where, where do they come from? I think um, Bournemouth have been relegated now. I think Nathan Aki is the name that is being linked with some of the top clubs. I think he's a good player. Um, I think he's got that Premier League experience, so he could maybe fill a hole somewhere. Um, other than that, I'm sure it's going to be an interesting market for transfers, you know. Clubs are going to be tight financially. Um, someone like Koulibaly is obviously a great player, but he's a little older. So I think in this this sort of market, um, it's probably not going to be big money spent on him. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to follow. I think now the season is finished, clubs will start start looking at their transfer business. And it's really going to be interesting to see where the market falls. Um, yeah, who knows with COVID and everything, uh, what's going on. Maybe there'll be some bargains out there, but maybe, maybe clubs don't have money yet. So we'll have to wait and see. Interesting. So, David, tell us kind of what are your first reflections on the season? What what did, what did they bring? Were there any surprises that you found? I mean, what what's good, what are you going to remember this season for? <clears throat> That's a good question. Um, I actually think it's been a, I think it's been the first season in a while where I have seen a decline in quality, a notable decline in quality in the Premier League. I think that. The Bundesliga has begun to catch up the Premier League in terms of excitement. And in, in fact, the Bundesliga was way above the Premier League this year in terms of excitement. And I think that in terms of quality, we know that the league has obviously been there with at least the upper uh, end of the league. But I think Serie A has also uh, had some outstanding quality this year in depth. I mean, you look at Serie A's top four and team for team, that is almost as strong as, as the Premier League. So... I, I don't. I think right now that the Premier League is living on a bit of a reputation. So that's the first thing I would say. I think other than that, I think the big story has been. Well, I've got to say Sheffield United, but I'm going to say that the English managers starting to um, let's say thrive. I think that both Chris Wilder and Sean Dyke have been excellent. Um, you see what Burnley have done in the second half of the season is phenomenal. And what Chris Wilder has done on a shoestring budget with Sheffield United and having them play the football they are, but also just being the difficult team to break down, which they are. And Burnley don't aren't, aren't the footballing side that Sheffield United are, but are equally as difficult to break down. And I think credit uh, is due to those two managers who have brought a bit of pride back to British managers who I think, rightly so, potentially, um, are not given the credit that they deserve. But I actually think right now, do you know what? Dyke and um, Wilder to leading lights. Interesting. Harshal, what's your take on, on the season? Yeah, I um, agree with what David said there. The league has definitely had a massive drop in quality. If you want a statistic for that, um, 
this is going to be the first season of the Premier League. I forget the, the amount of time, but it's going to be the first time in a while that the team in third place didn't reach 70 points. So, I mean, you've had Liverpool run away with the league for almost half of the season. You've had City not being able to keep up with them, but they're still a very good side. And then the rest of the other, uh, I mean, the rest of the top four AS or the rest of the sides who should be at the top of the table haven't really um, done as well as they as you would have hoped. And yeah, it's it's not been a very good season from the traditional big clubs. I mean, obviously Arsenal, Spurs are all down at the bottom. United scraped through to the Champions League. Even Chelsea, to an extent, sort of managed to make it there. So. Do you, think, do you think it's a season of transition though, Harshal? Because do you think, for example, I think that we're likely to see Chelsea and United look a lot stronger next season. I think you're also going to see Spurs look a lot stronger next season. So do you think it's a season of transition? Potentially yeah, potentially. Cause, yeah, because, I mean, Chelsea, United, uh, Spurs and Arsenal have all had new managers. I mean, not United. United obviously had Solskjaer before the season started, but he, he had about, what, half a season or so before this one started. It was his first full season. Mourinho came in at Spurs. Obviously, there was a managerial change at Arsenal with Arteta, Lampard's first season at Chelsea. So, yeah, in that sense, it, is, it has been a bit of a season of transition with of new managers trying to put bed in their ideas and trying to get a feel of the squad and all of that. But still, I mean, look at the players some of these teams have. So, And the fact that... I know Sheffield United didn't make it, but the, the fact that Sheffield United were there or thereabouts for about 60% of the season... For in contention for a Europa League spot. Wolves were in contention for a Europa League or a Champions League spot, which, I mean, arguably they have been that competitive ever since they came up. So, but, I mean, it, it, it's a bit of both, I think. Yes, it has been a season of transition, but at the same time, I feel some of these clubs and players could have done better. So, it now it's down to, I mean, what work they can do on the training field and what sort of transfers they bring in to see where these clubs end up next season. Uh, other than that, yeah, I uh, I thought Sheffield United definitely story of the season. If Liverpool, I mean, the fact that Liverpool have had such a dominant campaign has overshadowed their story a bit. But think about it. They, they came up from the championship and they finished ninth. They were as high as sixth as, at one point of uh, time in the table. So, absolute fair play to uh, Chris Wilder for that and everything he's done. Definite shout for manager of the season. Uh, I thought, again, Graham, Graham Potter has done a really good job at Brighton given the fact that he's literally gone from one style of play to another. There's been a fair bit of player turnover there as well. Another British manager who's done well. Um, Dean Smith, another British manager who managed to keep Villa up. I mean, Villa got 10 points from the last 12 games and that has made the difference. That's what kept them up. You know, they've, they've picked up, uh, I mean, crucial wins. They, they got the point today when it was needed and it was Jack Grealish who got the goal. So, yeah, Bit of a resurgence for British managers, hopefully, although one of the more promising ones has gone down in Eddie Howe. But, I mean, it, I think it's been a slightly underwhelming season as well. And I think, obviously, the break and all of that has to do with it. But it, there also has been a bit of a lack of quality. So, I'm hoping next season will be a bit more exciting because we didn't really have a title race either. So, you had to look for the race for the European spots or the relegation battle to get a bit of excitement for places and all of that. So I'm hoping some teams can challenge Liverpool next season or that Liverpool have a bit of an off-season either way that we have a bit more of uh, a race for the title next year. Sam, how about you? What's what's your take? Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. I think uh, you guys failed to give Liverpool a bit of love. Um, <laughs> Look at the jersey I'm wearing, mate. I can't give <laughs> Liverpool any love. <laughs> but yeah, no, no, they've, right. they've obviously had a great season. Yeah, they, I think Liverpool's had an amazing season. Obviously, say so that as a Liverpool fan. But I think it's, it's easier to kind of look at the... The recent games that bias um, post the, the COVID lockdown and kind of forget what what they were and what they were before the lockdown. What an amazing season we've had! So yeah, I think that's been a special storyline. Um, I agree. Sheffield United is an amazing kind of fairy tale story, um, and they've been great to watch as well, which makes it even better. And then I think other teams have overperformed as well. Um, kind of Wolves, Burnley, I'd probably even throw Leicester in that in that category. And then yeah, teams like Spurs and Arsenal have really underperformed. Um, like you guys said. So I think looking forward to next year, I think we know historically how difficult it is to back up that that Premier League title after winning it. So I think it'll be a more exciting title race next season. I think Man City uh, have looked really, really strong post the lockdown and they're kind of transitioning into a new era without without David Silva and maybe Foden coming in and taking the reins there a little bit. But 
they've got a great great squad depth, and I think they'll spend big again this summer. Um, and then, yeah, other teams like Arsenal seem to be free in and out. Um, United, maybe a couple more pieces, and there'll be a, another strong team. And Chelsea have made some really exciting signings. So if they can sort out their defensive issues then, yeah, I think we've probably got a better league to look forward to next season. So that's going to be exciting to follow. Um, can we, really can we make bold, be- super early predictions as to who we think is going to win the league next year? Does anyone, does anyone not think City? Yeah, Liverpool. You think Liverpool are going to win again next year? It's tough. It'll be a two-horse race, but yeah, I got to go. With I don't think it's tough. I think Liverpool is going to win. Well, no, that's... <laughs> yeah. Listen, Liverpool have been outstanding. I don't want to... Well, what are you saying then, David? I, I, I promise you, I've given plenty of love to Liverpool and other, other podcasts. I think they've been brilliant, but I just think it's so hard to retain a title. And I think City have been quite unlucky this year. I just think they're going to throw money, yeah. which I don't think Liverpool are able to. And yeah, I think... Yeah. I agree as a Liverpool fan. It's it's tough to know. So you look at this offseason and where are they going to improve as a squad? How are we going to attract players without that big money? And you can't really offer them a place in the starting lineup. So, yeah, it's going to be tough to, to improve. I think I think there is still a couple of uh, places where they could improve. As long as they keep the, the front three, I think that they're outstanding. Um, I do wonder whether they will just bring in I, I think Kevin Campbell at Leipzig, who is likely to leave Leipzig, would make a perfect addition at Liverpool. I think that he's uh, obviously played a, a, a similar system to what Liverpool played um, at Leipzig, but he's an incredible presser. And I think he would really work well in that team. So I, I think that would make a great off-season move for him. Um, what do you think about Thiago potentially? There's a lot of news or yeah. rumours flying around about Thiago yeah. and Liverpool. I mean, it would, it would give a different dimension to them, I would be wary of that transfer story just purely because of the amount of times that Premier League clubs have been stung by these kinds of stories just for the player to get a new contract. But you've only got in his deal, so Bayern are going to have to sort it out. But I think it's not even necessary Thiago doesn't want to sign it. I'm not sure if Bayern are really pushing out the, uh, you know, pulling out all the stops to, to sign him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Bayern said pretty openly that he's he's available to leave. He's kind of available yeah. for transfer, so... He's obviously a quality player. It's just whether he can fit into Liverpool's squad with the depth they already have in the midfield and they can keep everyone happy, I think. I genuinely think that that would completely change Liverpool's midfield because there isn't... I mean, Liverpool's creativity is through the flanks, through the full-backs, right? I mean, Liverpool, the midfield's job is to get the ball out wide to Robertson and Alexander-Arnold. I mean, Henderson, Wijnaldum and Fabinho aren't the creators. But Thiago is just so good in terms of retaining the ball, press resistance in terms of being able to pick out passes. I mean, he'd be able to find the likes of Salah, Mane and Firmino from those central areas. So, I also love Fabinho. I don't, wanna, I don't want him to, his role to be marginalised yeah. in any way. I think he's yeah. outstanding. And I think most Liverpool fans would agree that he's, he's, he's one of the first names in the team sheet. The thing is, when you look at Liverpool, you're right. It's so hard to improve him because they, you can't drop any players there. I think Jordan Henderson is probably PFA player of the year this year then you've got I mean, I'm saying that with De Bruyne having an outstanding season but I just think that I think Henderson I don't think he'll get PFA he won the Football Writers Award but I think the I'm PFA saying he's going to win it though Harshaw I know he's got the Football Writers but I'm saying he's going to win PFA and then you've got <laughs> I agree with you I think the respect that he's got within the playing community um, if you look at the record that Liverpool have with him without him this season and just like his leadership um, I think it's you can see they're a different team with him without him the intensity they play with so I mean He's probably I mean, not all, the best player in the league, but has he the, kind of been the most the most valuable player? Maybe I think oh, there's a strong argument for that. I don't know, man. I mean, I would go for De Bruyne. He's equal Thierry Henry's assist record today. He got twenty. He hit. You know, he got an assist today, and he's got twenty. So, not just because of the record, but just in general, I think because I, individual awards are a bit of a, a difficult thing to do in football, I guess. But I just give it to De Bruyne because he's had. I think he's. If you look at an individual award in terms of the the impact a player has on games, it's De Bruyne's impact is a lot more tangible than Henderson in the sense that the goals and assists. Obviously, Henderson has had a huge role to play in uh, Liverpool's success, both in the Champions League last year and the Premier League this year. And he fulfills a very specific tactical role for Jurgen Klopp. But, I mean, I don't think he's had a great individual season in terms of his own contribution to... Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's it's more. But the question is, though, you're beating around the bush. The question is, would Liverpool have won the league this year without Henderson? And yes. Maybe they. You think they would have done? I think they would have. I think they would have. 
I'm going to go back to what Sam said. With you see how they play without him and how they play with him, it's totally different. I think they've he's got the players to play that role. Heartbeat of that team. I think they've got the players to play that player, role. But he's a driving force and he's an unbelievable captain. And yeah. I just think he makes that team click. And they are phenomenal. There's phenomenal players throughout it. No doubt that Henderson is not the best individual player, but he's what has made that team tick. And they have been so dominant this year. So let me weigh in on this. When I play pickup, I want to be KDB, okay? But when I, when I, when I weigh into this debate, th- the truth is, is what Henderson brings is not measurable. Yeah. And just because something metrics are measurable doesn't mean they're better. And I just don't think we have the metrics yet to evaluate what Henderson does. But it seems like the writers and the players ha- have figured out that is more important. And I just think that in terms of making the difference, uh, he's just uh, he made he's made a bigger difference than KDB. Even though I absolutely love watching KDB. Yeah, and and that's not me saying that Kevin De Bruyne. If, if Kevin De Bruyne wins wins PFA, I'm going to say, wow, fantastic! He absolutely deserves it. I'm ne- I'm not going to say, oh, Jordan Henderson should have won it. I'm just saying, if I was picking it, I would pick Henderson, and I think he he deserves it. Yeah. Well, so I want to share a couple of my hot takes on on the season number one is uh i worry that the premier league is turning into a la liga or a, a ligun uh or even a bundesliga where you've got the one or two teams and everybody else um i am hopeful that the the premier league moves back to more of a competitive league frankly i i will tell you for me city ah was until very recently seemed to be the most competitive and fun to watch. Um, just because all, all the uh, answers were not preordained. So I, I do think that this notion of transition with respect to, to uh, changeover in managers, I think we've got a little taste of what the Premier League can look like. I'm not ready to throw Liverpool under the bus because they just happen to be so good that we can't re- replace them with any better players. Uh, just in that with Man City, you know, Man City, they have gotten everything right except for that center back. And when Vincent Company was injured, they looked vulnerable, right? And and so I'm really hoping that, uh, that defenders kind of get their due uh, because those are the missing pieces. I think in in the the Premier League right now. Um, so I am also struck by the fact that the top four teams uh, happen to be the ones with the biggest payrolls, right? And the top seven or eight teams, with a couple notable exceptions, which we've talked about uh, a great deal with Sheffield United and the Wolves. You know, um, money is kind of what what drives things. And I love Pep's comments on what makes a great club. Oh, that's easy. Great players, right? And, and so in order to get great players, you need to have the money to buy them and you need to have them at one or two deep and Liverpool and man, man city has, have nearly, uh, accomplished that, uh, Manu, Arsenal, Tottenham, everybody else has got gaps here and there. And, um, I don't think they're going to be able to compete over 38 games going forward. So I will tell you that I really felt like the last week or two, Seemed a little underwhelming uh, in terms of games. Uh, there were a couple of ex- exceptions, um, but you know it's a crazy year. What do you expect? And I will tell you, I have nothing but gratitude for the fact that we played again. And one of the most alarming statistics is that there were no reported positive COVID cases in the Premier League. Right? Unreported, we don't know, but reported. That is what it is. And, and that's, a, that's a huge win as far as I'm concerned, especially given what the next 12 months are, uh, are going to, to give us most likely. Any, any reflections on my, my thoughts? No, I mean, I, 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 think, I think it's a nice way to, to sum it up, Chris. Uh, you've uh, spoken like a, a true spokesman there. I, um, I agree. I think what you say about the Liga is spot on, and I am very worried about that. I think that the Premier League was fortunate enough to move away from that duopoly in the post-Arsenal United days. And it seems to be moving back to that. It will be interesting with Chelsea 
next year. I think Chelsea are more ready than anyone else to challenge. Uh, I think United are probably still a season away. Um, so if Chelsea can bridge the gap, then sure. But otherwise, yeah, I would agree that we could be looking at, at uh, another sort of Liverpool City battle once more. Sam, did you want to say something? Yeah, I think you mentioned COVID there. I think that's going to be interesting. Um, falling over in England, how, how quickly they can get fans back in the stadium and how that affects club revenues and what that looks like in the transfer market. I think that's going to be really interesting to see. Um, I think it has effect on the, the products and the pitch as well. I think like a team like Liverpool that um, creates a lot of intensity from their fans. I know they're not the only one in the league. There's a lot of teams that rely on their support. So it would be great to see fans back in the stadiums. And I think that would help clubs financially as well. But yeah, who knows? It's going to be, be uncertain. And we'll have to see what the, the next season looks like. So how about so a couple of quick hits? Um, what, we're going to do this in more detail later, but give, give me some quick sound bites on what you think is going to happen Champions League-wise. I think Atalanta are going to win the Champions League. That's my, <laughs> that's my bold shout. I love Atalanta. I think they've been, they've been unbelievable since the break. Now, obviously, I, I, <laughs> that'd be a big shock if they won the Champions League, but I do think they're going to run a lot deeper than people think. So I think Atalanta's a dark horse to look out for. You think they're going to be able to beat PSG, David? You think they're yeah. going to be able to beat PSG? Yeah, I think they can beat PSG. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a brilliant game. I, I'd love to see how... Well, particularly um, Mbappe is likely to miss it now, right? So, yeah, I mean, that's going to be the worst time of PSG. I think when you look to the run, PSG have got a real good chance of getting to the Champions League final, which is why I say I think Atalanta have got a great chance because that's by far the weaker side of the draw. So if PSG, if PSG can get past Atalanta, then they've got a real good chance. But the loss of Mbappe changes everything for me, for PSG. Um, the Premier League, though, I think City have got a good shot. They've got a really good shot. So, um, is, um, David, is David, I mean, is this it for David Silva in terms of the season or will he be playing in the Champions League? I'm not actually sure. I think he would still be playing in the Champions League. I think he's still going to be playing in the Champions League. Right? I don't see why he wouldn't be. I think, I think yeah. everything I've seen so far is just that that was the end last Premier League game we'd see him play but I don't think that's the end for City I think he's still no because that's one storyline which I think needs to be spoken about a little bit in terms of Silva obviously played his last game in the Premier League this today 10 years in the league and Mm -hmm. I think he arguably changed or was sort of the path breaker for that type of player in the league because I I can't remember the last player who came in before him who was that sort of Xavi Iniesta kind of player in the sense in terms of not physically um, uh, uh, dominant or strong but so good on the ball and so good at find, um, in terms of his movement and in terms of his ability to find space that, that that those physical sort of deficiencies if you want to put it in terms of being able to cope with the tempo and all of that of the Premier League didn't matter. So, so it'd, be nice, a, it'd be nice yeah. to see him finish his career with a, with a Champions League win, sure. Yeah, I think yeah. Bayern are the team to beat though. Uh, they're super dominant and they're going to be really tough to beat. So Biner in City's side of the draw. And yeah. Uh, yeah, City have got it all to do. So that's you, you want to be in the PSG side if, if, if you want to get an easy route to the final. What do you think, Stan? Yeah, I was going to say Bayern as well, actually. I think they're looking really strong. Um, it's going to be interesting how the kind of earlier finish of the Bundesliga affects them. Obviously, they're not going to play competitively for a while, but I think they have a great squad. Um, and I think Real Madrid are... Just in the Champions League, there seems to be something in the DNA of that club that they, they get going for that that competition. So I wouldn't rule them out, but I also agree. I think Man City have looked kind of exceptional since um, since the break, and Pep's going to really want some silverware, and that Champions League has been elusive for them. So they'll be gunning for it, and I think, yeah, it's going to be exciting. More great, great, great games. Yeah, I'm going to be cheering for Atalanta with their 40 million euro payroll, uh, yeah. which... Uh, so I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that PSG game. Um, Man City are the favorites, so we'll see how the Premier League represents. We've got a uh, basically seven weeks uh, from yesterday uh, is when the, the new season um, starts. So uh, I, I, I've been told that most of the teams are only going to have about a week or two of holiday, and then they're back to the grindstone again. Um, so that'll be uh, really. They, they had enough. They had enough time off, Chris. <laughs> I, I, I think that's fair to say. But I, I, it did seem like there were a lot of leggy players uh, this weekend, uh, and in those those midweek games. So I, I imagine they're going to want the break, and it's going to be fascinating to see how COVID uh, impacts uh, some of those returns. Uh, once I will say this though, Chris, looking ahead, that 
The Euro 2021 is obviously next year. They haven't got a, a break now, so they're going to be yeah. playing to 2021. Then they've got the season straight after, and they've got World Cup 2022. So there's a lot of games without much break for those international players, and I think that it's it's a difficult one. I I would, as an English fan, obviously I would rather we crashed out early in the Euro 2021 and won 2022. So um, hectic schedule for international players playing in Europe uh, over the next two years. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, just uh, adding to that as well, there is um, there are international fixtures scheduled before the start of next season as well with the UEFA Nations League. So there's, I think, two rounds of that. So the likes, I mean, all your European players are going to have to play two rounds of those games. Then the new season starts, which is starting in September. So it's starting a month later than usual. So then you will again see the fixture pile up for the Champions League, FA Cup, all of that once all of that starts. So there's going to be a lot more midweek games. Season ends, you run into the into the Euros, next season starts and then you have the World Cup in 2022 as David said. So the next two years, I think, is going to be very hectic for top-level footballers and I don't know. I mean, I don't know how, how many of them in terms of being able to cope with it or being able to perform at the very top of their ability. We, we'll have to see how they do because it's going to be really packed. Yeah. Well, we're going to have a lot to talk about uh, during the offseason. Um, we would like to thank Total Football Analysis. They are the world's largest open source soccer analyst community. Please visit www.totalfootballanalysis.com. Join us on our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.